If you have your Bibles, take a look at Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 31 through 39. We're going to finish Romans 8 today. We've been in this chapter for a number of weeks. And what is the theme of Romans 8? Assurance. It's assurance. We've come to the end of this study, and I want to remind you that the theme of this chapter is once again assurance. It's assurance of God's love amid our struggle in our sin, as Pastor Dwayne shared with us in Romans 7. It's our assurance of God's love amid any suffering that we we experience in this present evil age, which we've been looking at all through Romans 8. And now as we get to the end of this really great chapter, we find what I would say is an exuberant testimony of Paul's assurance of God's love for him, as well as all believers in Christ. And with that, let's read, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you pray with me today? Father, thank you for this passage. And Lord, this passage is is filled with such hope and such assurance. But Lord, for us to really appreciate it, you've had to take us through the whole chapter to see that we are struggling with our sin and that we are going to experience suffering in this present evil age. But Lord, just like last week, you taught us that you've got this and that you're in control of it all. And we've just sung together with one voice the living hope we have. And great is your faithfulness. So now, Lord, with one heart and with one mind, will you help us as we look at this passage? Father, I pray that the truth of this passage is what will be remembered today. I pray that no one will remember how they heard it or who gave this message, but they will remember remember the truth of it. And we pray this in your son's great name, the name above all names. Amen. What we just read is really a heart-stirring, and it's a poetic declaration of confidence in the love of God toward his children. In some translations, they actually bracket it like a poem because it's meant to be that way. It's as if Paul, in the middle of writing this great epistle in Romans, just can't help himself and just starts writing poetry. He just gets captivated with what he's learning. And what I'd like to do in our time here today is is really break down a little bit of this, this truly elegant statement of faith so that we can really see what Paul is saying. And so ultimately, Paul's song can be our song when we leave today. That's my goal. That's my goal for you. 
And I believe that this is a message that is absolutely vital in this day and age in our world and more specifically in Salem Baptist Church here in 2023. We're experiencing a time of uncertainty in our church. Where are we going? What does the future hold? What's going to happen? And friends, I get it. I get it. That uncertainty is almost palatable. You can almost feel it sometimes. This uncertainty brings feelings of insecurity that can be overwhelming. And the good news is that though Paul penned these words all the way back in A.D. 57, there's true now as the day the ink was still fresh on the parchment. And they display the very character and nature of God. As John, Stott's, as John Stott writes in his, one of his books, he says, insecurity is written across all human experience. Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation, or tragedy, but we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will ne never afflict us, but it will never separate us from his love. In our study of Romans 8, Paul's already taken us through an understanding that this present evil age is marked by suffering. And he's shown us that our hope should not be in some temporary relief from this suffering, but that we should place our hope in the absolute removal of suffering in that age to come. Remember, we're in this day and age, this present age, waiting for the age to come. And today, in this culmination of this beautiful chapter, Paul is reasoning with his audience that such a hope can be trusted because of the very nature of God's love for his children. And I want to talk about this love today, a love like no other. And I love talking about this. You're like, you love talking about love. It's, it's kind of my thing. In, 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 in high school classes, my seniors who graduated, now they're graduates, we're going to talk about relationships somewhere. It's going to happen. It comes up all the time. We talk about what this is. And I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about a love like no other that we've ever experienced in this life. And you may be sitting beside someone that you love deeply. And let me tell you, your love for that person is not like this love. Here's an example of this. I, when my wife and I, we first got married, we were maybe two years in to our marriage and we were finally getting along. Okay, that's, that's not even a joke, is it, babe? Not even a joke. Um, and I remember where I was sitting. I was sitting about right here on the balcony and during the service, it was right during the, the, the worship time, a gentleman who may have been in his 80s was wheeling in and his wife in her wheelchair. And you could tell that there was, she had been a recent stroke victim. And he wheeled her in. He sat about right here on this front row. And I don't have a clue what we were singing that day. But I remember sitting down, ready to hear Pastor Wilburn at that time give God's word to us. But I was watching this man. Because he put the wheelchair on the end of the pew and he scooted in, sat beside her. He brought out two Bibles. He opened up her Bible, put it on her lap, and he opened up his Bible. He reached around. He had his arm around her the whole time, finding the page for her, turning the pages for her. Now and then he would take his handkerchief out of his pocket and wipe her mouth and just rub her hair. I have no idea what Dr. Wilburn preached on that day, but I saw love that day. 
And I looked over beside my wife and I said, baby, that's varsity. That's varsity. Mine is middle school. My jersey doesn't match my shorts. I don't know. I don't know love like that, but I want to. And then I thought for a minute, no matter what you do, Rick, no matter how much you kill it as a husband, and boy, you have been, no matter how much you kill it as a husband, you're never going to love like I love you. I, heard, I felt like I heard that. And we see it as an example here. This love I'm going to talk about today goes far beyond what our finite hearts can even imagine. And with that said, let's take a look at Paul's words in verses 31 through 32 first, where he gives us an example of the love of God toward his children. He says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, keeping in the context of Romans 8, Paul's reasoning is that God has done the difficult thing by sending Christ to die in our place. Because he's done that, we can fully rely on him to do what's necessary to bring us to that final glory, our glorification that we spoke about last week. That's what he's saying. If God can do this, if God can send Jesus to pay the penalty of your sin and take care of that, you've got to trust him to take care of the rest. Now, to reinforce this truth, Paul is providing the readers here with a wonderful reference that would have stood out to any believer in Rome, specifically those who knew the Old Testament. Paul is using a phrase here. Look, Paul is basically saying this. He's saying God, if, saying, God for us did not spare his own son. Surely, that's the final guarantee that he loves us enough to supply all our needs. Paul's using the same wording that God used when Abraham was willing to demonstrate his devotion and love to Yahweh, the God of Israel, by willingly sacrificing his son, Isaac. He even says, if you look at Genesis 22, verse 12, God tells Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see what Paul's doing? That's called an illusion. He's, he's alluding to the Old Testament. Just like God said, now I know you, you, you were not you are willing to give up your own son, your own son for me. It's as if Paul is saying to these Roman believers, think of the greatest human example in the world of an individual's loyalty to God. God's loyalty to you is like that. William Barclay puts it this way, just as Abraham was so loyal to God that he was prepared to sacrifice his dearest possession God is so loyal to men and women that he's prepared to sacrifice his only son for them. Surely we can trust a loyalty like that for anything. That's what he's saying here. Now I have to admit, this terminology might be a little weird for some of you here today to talk about God being loyal to you. We're not used to speaking about God that way. We understand that we're to be loyal to him but the thought that somehow God is loyal to us may cause God to appear uh, to be seen by us as beneath us or beneath what his glory would demand, demand. However, if you'll indulge me just for a few moments to flesh this idea out a little bit. There's an interesting word used for God's love for his people, specifically in the Old Testament. We've talked about it before. It's a Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a fun word. 
And it's often translated as love in your translations. ESV does steadfast love. Um, the, the, uh, the CSB uses um, loyal love or faithful love, but it sets love apart from any other love. You, you see, it, it does that in those translations. It's a really great word. It's always described, it carries with it the idea in the actual using of the word, a loyal love, an unfailing kindness, devotion, a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship. This is not the love you would use when you say, man, I love pizza. You wouldn't use it for that. As a matter of fact, you may not also use this often when talking about a friend you love. This is a word you use for that spouse, that, that soulmate that God has provided you, for, provided, you, provided you with. The one who speaks two truths in your heart and, and, and knows you better than anyone else. Who knows everything about you as best as possible humanly. And still, for some reason, wakes up every morning and says, I'm glad I married that. That's that word. It's a loyal love. It's the love that I saw demonstrated by that couple, by that man. Who when some would say, man, what's going on in that relationship? He says, she's my bride. She's the woman I'm loyal to. And there is no other. As a matter of fact, God declares this word, said as part of his very identity. That's why this word's so important. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, we see that God hides him in the rock, puts his hand over it so he doesn't kill Moses by doing this, and then declares his name. He shows his ID to, to Moses. And when he does that, in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, he does it this way. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, God, in declaring his name to Moses here, chooses to affirm a very part of his identity as the one who displays loyal love, hesed, to his people. Thus, God's love for us is more than a feeling. I just ruined all the 1980s pop songs for you. And it really is. It's more than a feeling that captures his heart or seeks to capture ours. It's a divine reality. I want you to understand that. God's love is not a feeling because feelings can change. God's love is a divine reality founded in the very character of God himself in which he vows to be faithful to his people. He makes that promise. Now, if I may, this love of God that we, get at, we have the privilege of enjoying is not without consequences to us. We who are loved in this way now have a responsibility to reciprocate that love to God as well as extend that love toward his people as well. You see, I think sometimes we think about how great God loves us, we get so captivated in that that we forget 
that now that love has feet to it. We gotta love others in the same way. This is why scripture is filled with admonitions to love one another as he has loved us. This is why Jesus' own brother James can see fit to admonish his readers that is absolutely illogical to claim to say that you love God yet speak evil or hate your brother and sister in Christ. He says it makes no sense. He basically says you're lying about one. You're either lying about how you feel about your brother and sister when you say you hate them or you're lying about being a Christian because you can't be both. Furthermore, John, the disciple of Jesus, goes so far to tell his readers, we know that we've passed out of death into life. We know that we're believers. We know we have eternal life. We know we're Christians. How? Because we love the brothers. He puts a litmus test right there. He says, we know because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And that's John, the sweet disciple. I could hear that come from Peter. Paul, absolutely. But dear children, John just says it. Brothers and sisters, we've been blessed to be loved like no human love can express. And because of this love, we must love one another in the same way as best as our sinful hearts can. What does that look like? Well, it means we put others before ourselves. We place what we want on the back burner so that others can have what they need. This means we believe the best in one another, refusing to see those who disagree with us on some inconsequential matters, we refuse to see them as the enemy. This means we'd be willing to admit our faults and seek forgiveness from one another when we wrong one another. It means coming together in unity so that as Jesus asked his father the night he was arrested and sacrificed on our behalf, that they may be one, even as we're one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, the greatest testimony of the reality of Jesus to the world is when we come together in unity and loyal love for one another. That's clear. It's not in how eloquent the pastor is. It's not in how awesome the activities are around here. It's not in how well everything is decorated. It is in when we love one another loyally. It's clear. Next, in verses 33 through, 33 through 34, we see a legal confirmation of the love of God toward his children. You see, Paul goes, listen, I don't want to get you caught up in the emotion. I want to show you that legally... God loves you loyally. In verse 33, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We're using court terms now. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In these two verses, Paul asks then answers three theoretical questions in order to make the case for faith. We finally got to the title of our series. He does it right here. He does it with several questions. Here they are. First one, he asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's doing that? 
The question is asked as a defense of what Paul taught in Romans chapter 3 through 5 about justification. If you remember, if you were not here, let me give you this. The word justification means to declare righteous. And when we put our faith in Christ, when we trust to be true that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God, and that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again, when you put your trust in that, he declares you righteous. He sets you free from the penalty. Are you made perfect? Are you made righteous? Not yet, but you've been declared righteous in God's court. So no one can bring a charge against you because you've been declared righteous by the God of the universe. In essence, Paul is asking, if God has declared the believer in Christ to be righteous in the sight of God, how can anyone accuse us of anything that would cause us to be seen in any different way? We think like this with our families. We will believe the best in our spouses and our kids. I've seen it happen. We will never think that somebody would do that or say that, one of our spouses or say that. Think about that. Those of you who've been married 40, 50, even 60 years, if someone were to come up to you and say, I think your wife doesn't feel this way about you, your first response is, well, then she's playing the long game. <laughs> she must be waiting for me to die to get, in, to get the inheritance. She stuck with me. How could you dare say that? This is it's as if God, Paul is saying the same thing here. Or maybe think of it this way. Those who place their faith in Christ will never be found guilty before God at the judgment. We stand before God justified. It's, I share with it like this. If, you know, there's those courtroom scenes in heaven, maybe you, go, you show up to the gates, you, know, you have those scenes where somebody's behind there saying, why should I let you in? So imagine dying and going to the gate of heaven and God says on the other side, why should I let you in? And you say, because your word has said, if I put my faith in Christ alone, that you'll declare me righteous and I have this eternity waiting for me. If God were to say, well, that's not it. What else you got? And your response has to be, so hell's this way, right? Because you have no other option. You have nothing else. That's what this means. You have been declared righteous. So for God not to let you into heaven would be for him to go against his nature. Do you understand that? Those of you who've been declared righteous by faith are just taking God at his word. You're trusting him to be true. The second question, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Verse 34. Now, there's a, a neat way this is worded, and it's, this wording could be read, who is there that will condemn? It could be used in the future. Who is there that will condemn? When you stand before God, who is there that will condemn? Now, in the original language of Romans, it can be under, difficult to, to know just how to understand this. And honestly, there are two ways to look at his response in verse 34. There are two ways to look at it. One is you could take it as two statements, and it would look like this. God has acquitted us, therefore no one can condemn us. Christ is risen, therefore nothing can separate us from himself. Which is a beautiful truth, and it is true. But there's also a way to take this as one complete thought. The one complete thought is, God has declared us righteous. Who then could even try to condemn us? The answer is that the only judge is Jesus Christ. Do, do you see that? The only one who can condemn you is Jesus. And what did he do? He died for you, rose again. He's on your side. 
That's what the text is saying. He's the only one who has the right to condemn us. And on the contrary, far from condemning us for our sins, he's at the right hand of God actually interceding for us. While he should be the prosecuting attorney, he actually becomes the defense attorney. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, we are secure and safe from any condemnation, as Paul wrote in the first part of this chapter. Either way you take it, one or two, the outcome doesn't change. Paul gives us two reasons why no one can condemn us. Christ died on our behalf, and he is alive at the right hand of God as our defense attorney. Next one, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In this final theoretical question, Paul is addressing possible objections from his audience that they may have that suffering indicates that God has removed his love from them. Remember, that's something they were struggling with. And he says, let me, let me show you how clear that is. He's seeking to show his readers that their present suffering does not separate believers from Christ's loyal love. In fact, Paul's point is that present suffering actually carries them along toward God's ultimate goal for them. Now, the things listed here that I'm, we're about to look at are not meant to be an exhaustive list of that which cannot remove God's loyal love from us. The items in this list are specific to what Paul has already experienced in his service for Christ. John MacArthur makes this point in his notes on this passage that it should not be overlooked. He says, the list of experiences and persons that can't separate the believer from God's love was not just a theory to Paul. He wasn't going, I bet this is true. He was saying, I know this is true. It was rather a personal testimony from the one who had personally survived assaults from all these entities and emerged triumphant. So what we have here is not some lofty, merely poetic claim of God's love to make us feel good. It's the testimony of a man who suffered all these things, yet still knows that God's love has not been taken from him. And to reinforce this understanding in the midst of the audience, he goes back to the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, to show that suffering has always been a part of God's people. When he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Beloved, God has not promised us a life that's exempt from suffering. We've talked about that. Paul has addressed this over and over again in this chapter alone. Therefore, we should not be surprised when suffering occurs but we should be mindful to refuse to allow our present suffering to change what we know to be true about God. Or as we like to say around here at Salem, we cannot let our circumstances define our theology. We must let our theology, what we know about God, define our circumstances. That's what we have to do. And finally, in verses 38 through 39, we see a declaration of confidence in the love of God toward his children. Paul says in verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul uses some strong wording in this phrase, and the very strong word he uses is in that phrase, I am sure. It's a cool word in the Greek, patho, which describes an action of convincing someone through persuasion. It refers to a confidence or a trust in something or to an absolute conviction. In this passage, and forgive me for being a, a grammar nerd for a moment, 
It's a passive, perfect passive verb, which indicates the idea of having absolute certainty regarding something or someone. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week, we talked about when you used to go and pick out a gift from your, for your parents for your birthday or Christmas, and then you couldn't get it until your birthday or Christmas. They'd wrap it and put it under the tree or try to hide it from you, and you would always find it. But you would, it's like that idea. The gift, the gift is there. You picked it out. You're just waiting for the day to unwrap it. What kind of fool would walk around going, man, I really hope I get that. It's a certainty. It's in the closet. It's under the tree. That's what Paul is saying here. I am sure. Friends, Paul is not mindlessly hoping, wishing upon a star that this is true. He's absolutely sure that nothing can separate him from God's loyal love. Why? Because he has seen firsthand through his own trials and suffering in his life that Jesus, or with Jesus, that never once did he ever walk alone. Paul understands that since Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross, there's absolutely nothing that can change God's loyal love or purpose for him. And it's not just something Paul understands. As a matter of fact, in his first letter, the apostle Peter makes the same bold claim to believers in Jesus that they are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, and I use that word specifically today, beloved, those loved by God's loyal love. If you've trusted Christ alone for salvation, Paul's testimony is yours as well. You, like the author of this passage today, can rest assured that there is coming a day when your faith will become reality. In his commentary on Romans, author Kenneth Boa gives us seven beautiful truths that I'd like to share with us today from Romans 8 that I feel like we need to hold on to before we leave. And I'm going to put them up all on the screen, but I think you probably should wait till the last one's up. Maybe take a picture of it. This is one of those things, put a note card on it, put it on your mirror in, your, in the morning. See this every day you go somewhere. Sometimes we have to speak the truth to ourselves, and this is one of those times where we have to speak truth to ourselves. Kenneth Boas says, according to Romans, in Christ, I'm free from any condemnation. In Christ, I have kept the righteous requirements of the law. In Christ, I'm obligated to be led by the Spirit. In Christ, I'm a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. In Christ, I will be redeemed from this cursed creation. In Christ, I am certain of my eternal glorification. And in Christ, I fear nothing in or out of this world. Those are beautiful statements to teach yourself every day this week and going forward. To be reminded of, your, of the loyal love that God has for you in Christ. Friends, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted to be true that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what the Bible says he did, you are the receiver or beneficiary of these amazing and awe-inspiring blessings. However, it's normal as those to, who live in this present evil age to have times of doubt and uncertainty. We get there. You could memorize this and still have doubts and uncertainty. We get it. We may feel this way when we fail him in some way and feel unworthy of his love or when we face suffering and feel as if he, for some reason, has removed his love from us. We will all face times where we lack assurance that this chapter offers us. In 1871, a hymnist named John Campbell Sharp penned the hymn, From Noon of Joy to the Night of Doubt. 
And I thought, maybe this is the time where I'll show you guys as a pastor I can sing to. I'm not. <laughs> because honestly, I've never heard this song before. And I tried, I looked online, I was like, is there a melody? I looked on everywhere. No. Apparently no one ever sings this song again. I don't know. But it's worth listening to. It's a hymn that describes this believer's struggle with the assurance of God's love amid sufferings in this world. And even the struggles of his own heart in comprehending that love. It reads this way. From noon of joy to night of doubt, our feelings come and go. Our best estate is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood of feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But thou, O Lord, thou changest not the same thou art alway. I grasp thy strength, make it my own. My heart with peace is blessed. I lose my hold and then comes down darkness and cold unrest. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail grasp of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe, thy mighty grasp of me. I love that line. Let me no more put my trust in how I can hold on to you, but let me put my trust in how you hold on to me. Thy purpose of eternal good, let me be surely, but surely know. On this I'll lean, let changing mood and feeling come and go. Glad when thy sunshine fills my soul, not sad when clouds are cast, since thou within thy sure control of love dost hold me fast. Beloved, this is the message of Romans 8. One last quote. F.F. Bruce neatly summarized it this way. Nothing in the course of time nor in the expanses of space, nothing in the whole universe can sever the children of God from their Father's love secured to them in Christ. Beloved, it is my prayer for us that the extravagant, loyal love of God would capture our hearts in such a way that we cannot but allow it to change how we see Him, ourselves, and one another. And may this love compel us to go now from this place and to proclaim the truth of this love to all we have been blessed to share it with. Will you pray with me? Our great God, our loving Father, human words are frail and fall short in times like this. Father, with, with finite, with sinful lips, we proclaim how you love us. And Lord, our minds cannot fully grasp it. And as we've been talking for the last few weeks about the already but not yet, looking forward to that age to come when you set all things right, Father, one thing I look forward to right now is when you glorify this sinful body that I can say to you, without any sin, without any preconceived notions, but in a pure way, I can say, I love you. So, Father, I pray that you accept the sinful offering of my words to you now. Lord, we love you, but only because you first loved us, and you love us with a loyal, never quitting, never giving up, never stopping, forever love. Father, may that love motivate us. May it cause us today to get things right with people in this room. May it break our hearts over the way we handle one another. 
way we handle family, friends, coworkers, people we just run into every day. May people see in us, may we live in such a way so captivated by the loyal love in which you give that when people spend time with us, it's like they spent time with Christ. Father, may that be the legacy of Salem Baptist Church, not in the size of our building, the size of the congregation, what happens as activities, but may the world, may West Salem, may Forsyth County and beyond marvel at how we love them. And we pray this in the name that's above every name, our Savior Jesus, amen.